It was in the summer of 2014 that my wife Karen and I were given, a, I think, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was in that summer that we traveled to the continent of Africa. Never dreamed I would ever go there. But we went there. We spent about two weeks. It was amazing. We got to see some good friends who lived in Johannesburg. Uh, they serve as missionaries there. At one time, she was a girl in our youth group way back in the day. So it was super cool to go there and, and spend a little bit of time with them. But the majority of our time was spent in the country of Mozambique. And we were visiting our missionaries, Tim and Beth, that our church used to the support. And uh, we just lived life with them and uh, experienced the culture. And it was incredible. Well, one day <clears throat> when we were there, we were walking along the beach. Uh, it was the Indian Ocean. How cool is that, right? The Indian Ocean. And we're walking along the beach and we stumbled upon a scene that I totally wasn't expecting. And when I saw this unfolding in front of me, I literally ran towards it. I was so interested. I was so fascinated that I ran towards this as it was unfolding and I just couldn't believe it. What was in front of us was this. A group of fishermen were hauling a net in from the ocean. And this net, I want you to think, gigantic net. I'm talking like 70, 80 feet long probably. I don't know. That's just my guesstimate, right? And, and th there was four or five men on each end of the net dragging it in towards the shore. And, and we got there just as it was coming up out of the water. And this net was filled with fish. And that's why it took like eight grown men to, to haul it up onto the beach. And so they got it up out of the water, up by the beach, and kind of flung out the net and got it. And it was just a giant pile of fish. And folks, any fish you've ever imagined was in this pile. There was a baby shark, there was an octopus, there was flounders, there was every kind of crazy looking fish that lives in the ocean. There was a little bit of everything in this huge pile. But once they got the net off it and they had this giant pile, these fishermen immediately waded into the middle of the pile and began separating. And all the desirable fish, the fish that they could sell in the market, they were throwing in the five-gallon buckets. Everything else, the junk that wouldn't sell, that wasn't edible, they were just tossing it over their back. They were just throwing it off to the side. And they went through this separating process as quick as they could because they don't have any refrigeration. They were going to get these five-gallon buckets full of fish and get on their motor scooters and ride in the town about 20 minutes away to immediately sell them in the market. And so they have to move quickly quickly in this process, but they knew exactly what they were looking for, the fish that would sell and the fish that they would have to throw off to the side. And even as I was watching that, I kid you not, this isn't so that it fits well with the sermon, okay? But I kid you not that even as I was watching that, the parable that we're going to look at today came to my mind from Matthew chapter 13, because it was biblical. It was exactly what Jesus was talking about in this parable 2,000 years earlier. And I found that really fascinating, really amazing. And so last week, Pastor Chris, uh, we began this two-week uh, teaching series on organic outreach. And my friend, let me tell you this, if you weren't here last week, if you didn't get a chance to hear Pastor Chris's sermon, I want to encourage you, listen to it this week. He hit a home run. 
okay? His explanation of organic outreach and what our strategy is as a church, he nailed it. It was dead on. It was great stuff, okay? And so what I'm going to share with you today will be a lot more meaningful for you if you know what Chris said last week. So I encourage you to check out that sermon, okay? But what I'm going to focus on today, because I think this parable answers the question, why bother? Last week, Chris set up the strategy we use to help people come to know Christ. And, and so what I want to answer today is why bother with what Chris said last week? Why be inconvenienced? When so many people are indifferent to the gospel, why bother putting yourself out there trying to help people or reach out to people when they're probably going to reject you anyway? And you're busy already. You've got a lot of things going in life. Why bother living your life intentionally to be engaged in organic outreach? This parable answers that question, why bother? It's why Jesus told the parable in the first place. And I'll tell you this, this parable is shocking. It's powerful. Many people have called this the terrible parable. And in just a couple of minutes, you're going to see why it's called the terrible parable. But we find it in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 47. I'm going to invite you now to please stand at the reading of God's word. And I invite you to follow along in your own Bible or on your phone or on the screen. But follow along as I read. Matthew chapter 13, it's commonly called the parable of the dragnet or the, the terrible parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up on the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. That is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come, and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you understand all these things? Yes, they said, we do. Then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Let's pray. Father God, we ask today that your word would find fertile soil in our hearts, that God, we would be open, we would be teachable, that we would be receptive to truth, Lord, even if the truth is hard. Illuminate the scripture to us, Father, as we unpack it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't usually use alliteration, but today you're going to notice my outline. I'm using alliteration. We got all P's going here, okay? So check it out, okay? As we unpack this, um, first of all, I want you to see the picture, the picture, the word picture that Jesus is painting for his listeners. Again, verse 47 and 48, the kingdom of heaven it's like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it up on the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into crates, but threw the bad ones away. 
Jesus was a master communicator and he had the ability to take really profound truth, really difficult truth, really abstract concepts and get even the uneducated common everyday person to understand it. And what he would do is he would take experiences from their life, things they were already familiar with and paint a word picture to illustrate what he was trying to say. And so he's dealing with folks who lived along the Sea of Galilee. And so if you weren't a fisherman, your dad was probably a fisherman. If your dad wasn't, your grandpa probably was. If no fishermen were in your family, probably your next door neighbor was a fisherman. And you probably went fishing on a fairly regular basis yourself. It was so much a part of their culture, so much a part of their economy that any one of his listeners would totally connect with this picture. As he told this story, they'd say, oh man, I've seen that played out a hundred times down at the beach. I know exactly what you're talking about here, Jesus. So that's the picture. Now, what's interesting is in the days of Jesus, there was three common methods for fishing. And we can find each of them in the book of Matthew, actually. And the first is the, the line and hook. Now, most of us have done that kind of fishing, haven't we? Where you bait a hook and you throw the line into the water and when you get a bite, you pull it out. That was the method that was used when Jesus told the Peter, uh, hey, go cast a line into the water and the first fish you pull out, open its mouth and you're gonna find a coin in it and take that coin and go pay the tax at the temple. So that's still the common form of fishing around here, right? And that was used back in the day of Jesus. The second type of fishing that was done was with a casting net. And in Matthew 4, when Jesus called uh, Simon and Andrew, the brothers, they were fishing together. And at that time, that's the style they were using. And it can only be done in shallow waters. You do it in a boat while in shallow, wa shallow waters. And what it is, is you cast out a round net that kind of like a Frisbee. So it lands flat on the water. And so you cast it out and you've got ropes on, you've got a rope on it, of course, but you go and it has weights all around the perimeter of this round net. And so as it hits the water and lands flat, then it immediately starts sinking to the bottom, but it's got a rope attached to the middle of it. So just before it gets to the bottom, they yank it up. And as they yank it up, the net closes in on itself and it catches all the fish that were there. And that was called a casting net. But a third way that was common for fishing in this day is the method of fishing that we find here in the parable we're looking at now. And it was commonly called using a drag net. A long, long net that could be stretched out. They said some of these nets could be up to a half a mile long. Can you imagine a net a half a mile long? That's nuts. And what they would do is they would put like flotation devices on the top and weights on the bottom so that it was fully stretched out. And in Mozambique, you know what they were using is two liter bottles. At the top of the net were two liter bottles with, with the cap on it. So, you know, they were filled with air and they were buoyant. And the bottom of the net, they were using two liter bottles filled with gravel. And, and so the net was fully extended and they would stretch it out across the water. And then in a big arc, they'd start pulling it in towards the shore and they would pull it in and it would be an all-inclusive catch. All the fish would be caught that were in the area. Um, it's really pretty amazing. And then they would begin the methodical process of sorting out the fish. So that's the picture. They could all connect with that. Now here's the principle, okay? The principle that Jesus was trying to teach here by painting this picture is found in verse 49. He says, that 
is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous. Have you ever purchased a car, maybe? And it's only after you've purchased it and you're driving it around that it seems like every other person owns the same car. Like you never really noticed it on the road before, but once you have one, it seems like they're everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? That's the way it is if you think about the separating of the wicked from the righteous, and then you read the Gospels. Because you know what you'll find? Jesus talked about this all the time. It's an extremely prevalent teaching in the New Testament, right from the words of Christ, that the day will come where there will be a separation of people, that believers from unbelievers, the wicked from the righteous, that a day is going to come where those two groups of people are going to be separated for all eternity. It's a prevalent teaching. Let me give you a few examples from, uh, and I think they're all from the book of Matthew here, uh, of Jesus' teaching on this. Check out Matthew 24, verse 40 and 41. Jesus said, two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Again, they're doing everyday, mundane, ordinary things, and all of a sudden, one person is taken, one person is left. The final separation of the wicked and the righteous will take place at the final judgment. And Jesus taught... Uh, another parable in Matthew chapter 13 earlier before the parable of the dragnet about the parable of the wheat and tares. Are you, are you familiar with that story? Familiar, the story of the wheat and tares is this farmer has a large field and he plants wheat, but overnight an enemy comes in and plants the seeds of weeds. Uh, it's, it's called a tare, uh, but it looks almost exactly like a wheat stalk. And so as the crop germinated, they realized, wait, There's weeds mixed in with all the wheat. What's going on? They realized an enemy had sabotaged the field. And so the the workers said to the field owner, hey, do you want us to pluck all these weeds? Do you want us to try separating these? It was like, no, 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 don't do that because you'll probably, half the stuff you pull up will probably be wheat. Just let it all grow together. And then at the end, at harvest, we'll separate it. We'll winnow it out and we'll separate the wheat from the tares. And you know what? That's the world in which we live. Believers live alongside unbelievers. We work together. We live together. We drive next to each other in traffic. We even attend the same church. Because my friends, you can't look at the people around you and know who's a true believer and who's not. It's hard to tell. The wheat and the tares are so close, right? It's not like like true believers have a halo hanging over their head, you know, or something, you know what I mean? And so it's like, do we make a big deal at ACC? Hey, we got to figure out who the real Christians are and who the fakers are, right? And Jesus says, don't bother. Just let them live together. Let them sing together. Let them serve in the nursery together. Don't worry about that stuff. At final judgment, that's going to be determined. You don't need to worry about that now. Just take care of yourself. What a fascinating teaching. And then look what he says in Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39. This is uh, some sobering stuff. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. 
People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. My friends, the teaching of Christ is simply this, that an invisible net is closing in on the human race. And we go about life taking care of our kids, paying our bills, going to work, making appointments, going to parties. But the entire time, a net is closing in. And the day will come, the hour will come, where that net will be drawn out of the water. And at that point, it's too late. Because up until that point, everybody's not expecting it. Everybody's not waiting for it. And it catches people off guard and it's brought in and it's too late. And the separating process will begin. The principle simply stated is this. God will one day separate the wicked from the righteous. Now, you and I understand that the righteous are those who trust in Jesus, right? We're not righteous because we're better than anybody else or we're more moral than anybody else. We're given the gift of righteousness from Christ when we trust in him. Those separated from God can be called sinful, can be called wicked, and that process will happen. So you see, every day that God doesn't pull in the net is another day of grace. It's another day for people to have the opportunity to come to him for forgiveness. He gives us another day to share Christ with those around us who need to know about him. Every day that net isn't pulled in, it's grace. But the fact is, the days of grace will end. The mercy of God will end. And judgment will come. And when it does, a separating process will begin. And so now we have in verse 50 the peril. And this is some of the hardest stuff to accept. When this happens and the net is pulled in and the separating process begins, the undesirable fish, the wicked, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The brutal reality of hell is really unfathomable for us. To think that a decision a person makes in time will last for eternity is so hard for us to accept. And my friends, this is some of the hardest teaching of Scripture. But here's what I want to tell you. If the doctor tells you you have cancer, that's extremely distasteful news. You don't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Truth sometimes can be brutal, can be hard, but ultimately it's better knowing hard truth. And just as if you have cancer, you want someone to tell you that ultimately. If hell is real, if hell is the destiny of those who don't know Christ, Tell us that now. And you know what? In the Gospels, Jesus talked far more about hell than he ever did heaven. Jesus talked about heaven really very, very little. He talked about hell quite a bit. And he wasn't, and actually Jesus wasn't afraid to use it as a motivation to get right with God. Because that is the destiny for those who aren't connected to him. What does scripture teach about hell? There's a few things we know for sure about hell. 
we know the following according to scripture. First of all, hell is a place of torment. It's a place of agony of both body and soul, a place filled with regrets and despair. In our parable here, it says that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's an interesting phrase, gnashing of teeth. And what, what it's picturing is a person in extreme pain and anguish. It, it's like the picture, it's like the idea of like, you know, if you, if you accidentally hit your thumb with a hammer really, really hard, and you'll probably scream in pain, and then what do you do? You close your eyes and you go, you gnash your teeth, you clench your jaw. And it, it's a way you're trying to cope with incredible pain. That's the phrasing used here, that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of torment. Secondly, it's a place of isolation. It's a place of isolation. Some people don't like being alone, right? And all of us like companionship. But to think of a place where for eternity, you'll never hold someone else's hand. You'll never have someone else to talk to. It'll be complete isolation. Third thing we know is this, that it's a place of darkness. There's been stories of people who've been lost in caves or in mine shafts who were found weeks later. Somehow they had survived, but you know what? They were never the same after that because they literally went insane from the darkness. That being in complete and utter darkness, even for a short length of time, can alter a person's brain. And most of us have been in unexpectedly like in dark rooms or like the power has gone off. But what have we learned about situations like that? That if you don't panic and you stand still long enough, eventually your eyes will adjust, right? To where even just a little bit, you can see some shapes and you can figure your way out of the room. But imagine a darkness where your eyes never adjust. Where you will never see another thing no matter how hard you gaze. And then lastly, hell is eternal. It's going to last forever. I don't like talking about this. If you've been to ACC any length of time, you know we're not a hellfire and brimstone kind of church, right? And, and so like, I kind of like freak out like, for new people who are here, like their first time here, and they're like, oh my gosh, what did I walk into, you know? I don't preach about hell real often, but I also don't avoid it, right? And, and I know it's true. We, we, we don't use it to scare people or intimidate people or whatever, but at the same time, we're responsible to teach it occasionally, right? And to express to people this is true. So I feel a lot of inner tension even teaching this stuff, okay? But it's true. Jesus taught it. I've got to teach it. We've got to deal with it. But the idea of an eternal hell is so uncomfortable that over the centuries, people have tried to alter the character of hell to make it just a tiny bit more palatable, you know? And so they get away from the biblical teaching of hell. Let me give you some examples of how people have altered the uncomfortable truth of hell, okay? First of all, what people often do is they, they, they talk about hell like it's a place to party with your rowdy friends. Have you ever heard people talk about hell this way? I've heard people say, yeah, heaven won't let me in and hell's afraid I'll take over, blah, 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 right? You know, and, you know, we'll be drinking our beers and, you know, and, you know, debauchery and, you know, it's going to be awesome. 
Oh yeah, if hell was like that, I guess that wouldn't be too, too bad, right? I mean, even if you don't drink, you could learn how if you had to, right? But people do that. And that's how they make their brain cope with that is, well, yeah, bad people go there, but at least your friends will be there and you can have a good time, right? Second way they alter this truth is they say it's a place for only the worst of the worst. In other words, yeah, you need to worry about hell if you're John Wayne Gacy or if you're Hitler, but otherwise, man, chill, relax. God's not that mean. I mean, as long as you're just basically average, you're, you're going to be okay, you know, don't worry about it too much. Another way they do it is by believing that hell is temporary. It's temporary. Yeah, you might suffer for a little bit, but eventually you get paroled. You do your time and then you get out. That teaching is commonly called purgatory, that hell is temporary, and that you can even pray relatives out of hell. Living relatives who remember you can pray you out. So you do your time, but eventually you get out. That was a teaching created by an ancient church father by the name of Origen in the second century. He didn't get it out of the Bible. He just made it up because he didn't like the truth about hell. And so he concocted this idea of it being temporary, but it's not found as a teaching in scripture. Another way people deal with the uncomfortable truth about hell is they teach annihilation. And what annihilation is, and that's a very unbiblical teaching, but they teach that, that once you die, you're done. There is no afterlife. There's no heaven. There's no hell. When you die, you just cease to exist. And death is annihilation. So you don't need to worry about eternal punishment, but you also don't experience any eternal reward either. This doesn't make any sense as far as like Jesus promising eternal life, but some people settle in on this. And then lastly, some people believe in ancient heresy called universalism. Universalism is the teaching that all people are saved. It's the idea Jesus died for the entire world. Jesus died for everybody. So you're good. Your neighbor's good. Your coworker's good. Everybody's good. Everybody will get saved eventually. So don't worry about it. You know, it's called universalism. The problem is it's not biblical because the Bible teaches over and over again, there needs to be a response on our part. Did Jesus die for the entire world? Absolutely. But the only way that salvation is applied is if a person asks for it, if a person comes and trusts in the finished work of Christ. And so again, I just want to remind you that when truth is hard, we need to simply ask, does the Bible teach it? If the Bible teaches it, then you and I have to deal with hard truth, just like a cancer diagnosis. And so finally, we get the, to the last point of unpacking this parable, and we find the proclamation of Jesus. And this is super unusual. I think, I could be wrong, but I think this is the only parable Jesus ever taught where he gave his own application of it when he was done. And so after teaching this incredibly terrible parable, he turns to his listeners and said, do you guys understand what I just said? And I would ask you as a congregation, do you understand what I just preached? Do you understand what we've just talked about in the last 20 minutes? They said, yeah, we understand, we get it. Jesus said, okay, if you get it, here's the implication. Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Now that's not super obvious what Jesus is saying. That's a little bit obtuse, okay? But let me tell you, 
the point Christ is making here. And I think you'll be able to relate to it. What he's saying is that once we become followers of Christ, we are like homeowners. And the responsibility of like the head of a household is you take care of your peeps. So that when you get paid, you don't immediately go out drinking till two o'clock in the morning and then wake up the next morning and go gambling and gamble away the rest of your paycheck. And you can't pay bills. You can't put food on the table. You can't afford a doctor for your kids. You don't do that that the responsible head of the household manages their affairs and manages their finances so that they can care for their people. And so Jesus is saying, when you become a follower of Jesus, you're like the head of a household. And what you have is a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What you have is a knowledge of the gospel. What you have is a knowledge that hell is real. And eternal life is found only through Christ. And so now, what are you going to do with this? Are you going to dispense this out? Are you going to give this out to people? Are you going to pray for people? Are you going to engage people? Are you going to try blessing people? As Chris was teaching last week. Or are you not going to care? Are you going to be so calloused that you take no responsibility for what God has given you? My friends, if you understand the parable, then you are like the head of a household dispensing old truths, new truths, and reaching out to people in a culturally relevant way. And I'll tell you what, how outreach is done in Mozambique is so much different than how we do it here, and so much different than how we do it in Mexico, and so much different than how they do it in Papua New Guinea. And it's so much different how you do outreach here in a rural community versus an urban area. And so you take the gospel of Christ and then be aware of your surroundings and your cultural context and you reach out to people in a way that they'll understand, in a way that will make a difference. We are responsible for using our resources to dispense the truth. That's the application Jesus makes from the terrible parable for us, that we are responsible to use our resources to dispense the truth. What would we call the head of a household who let their kids go hungry and gambled and drank away their entire paycheck? What would we call the head of that household? At best, we'd say they were irresponsible, right? but we'd probably have a lot harsher words than that. We'd probably call them a fool, unloving, selfish. How much more so for us when eternity is at stake? How much more of an indictment against us when we choose to not engage our friends and coworkers and family members who don't know Christ simply because we're afraid of being rejected, simply because we're afraid of being misunderstood? And this is hard stuff, isn't it? I mean, and my goal isn't to make you feel guilty. Except if you are guilty, then feel free to go ahead and be guilty, okay? But then do something about it. Decide to engage. And like what we teach, begin with prayer. If nothing else, just begin with prayer for those who don't know Christ and see what happens. So why bother? Why bother to engage and bless in organically reaching those around you? Why bother? For two reasons. One, hell is real. That's the destiny of those who don't know Christ. Secondly, we are tasked by Christ to be a responsible witness. Once you know him, 
That's a responsibility you can't take off your shoulders. You carry that for the rest of your life. And it's a matter of what you do with it. Are you a responsible head of a household or are you a callous, indifferent head of a household? That's the challenge Jesus would set before us. And so I want to encourage you, if you know Christ, friends, get started in praying for and reaching out to those around you who don't know him. I'll tell you what, every person in your life who doesn't know Christ, God put him in your life for a reason. And secondly, I want to say this. Do you know Christ? My friends, that invisible net's closing in, and you know what? When will it hit the shore and be dragged up? Could be tonight, this afternoon. Could be 10 years from now. Could be 1,000 years from now. We don't know. But whenever it is, we know it'll be unexpected. It'll catch people off guard. And once it starts, it's too late. So I want to encourage you, if there's even a a flicker of doubt about where you stand in your relationship with God, don't leave this room till you know. Talk to me. Talk to somebody. We can pray with you. We can share with you just briefly from Scripture what it means to trust in Jesus. And you can have the assurance of eternal life. Don't leave this room if there's even a flicker of doubt. Are you glad you came this morning? I'd like to pray for us, okay? Father God, man, truth can be hard sometimes, Lord. It can be hard to accept. It can be hard to think about. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to speak truth. We thank you, Lord, that you make us aware of the realities of the kingdom of heaven that, Father, we can live our lives accordingly. Father, I pray that you draw each person in this room towards Christ, that if they've never trusted in him, that they would give their lives over to him even this morning. Father, for those of us who do know you, who have experienced forgiveness in Christ, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be responsible heads of household, that, Father, we would live our lives in intentional ways to engage others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us start with prayer. Lord, if nothing else, let us each start by praying for the salvation of those around us. And then, Lord, let us grow and learn from there. Father, help us as a church to be blessing those around us. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.